Okay, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, and let's stand for the reading of the word this morning. This is the authoritative word of the Lord to us, a a section of God's word that often is just kind of like skipped over to get to the flood um, because of some confusing, but this is the authoritative word of God. It's here for a reason, and so, uh, Lord God, would you open our eyes to see Glorious things from your word this morning, in Jesus' name. Chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be a 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Now when we come again to passages like this, we have lots of questions. We just kind of go right to the questions of who are the sons of God? Who are the Nephilim? uh, What are the Nephilim? Were they giants? Were they part God, angelic being, part human? Or or were they just mighty men? Um, And speculation abounds. Hollywood exaggerates. Imaginations soar and our western rationalistic worldview takes center stage and its skepticism but what i wanted to take time to consider this specifically this morning and somewhat uh, unique passage in scripture um, is because it was important enough that god had moses inscribe the story for the israelites remember they're believed that they're on the edge of the promised land and there's things that that, that god is telling them communicating to them by way of of uh, through through the pen of moses and uh, or the author, and um, and so in this text, even though there's difficulties in this text, it sets the stage for the story of the flood that we're all relatively familiar with anyway. And amid some of the potential difficulties, um, and it setting the stage for Noah and the ark that's going to be considered, um, it, it's it's the recognition that it's on account of this text. This is like a kind of an in-between text, important, it's not just simply a segue text, but it's important to recognize that on account of the things that we see in this text, the floodwaters came. And what we see, overarchingly, is that, this is once again we see this, that even amid significant weakness, And in the face of the holy grief and wrath of God against pervasive wickedness, God reveals himself as the steadfastly gracious, merciful, and faithful God. God reveals himself as the steadfastly gracious, merciful, and faithful God amid significant sin. God is not unmoved emotionally, but he is... He is is unmoved in his commitment to redeem a people for himself to dwell with. Nothing is going to get in his way. So we're going to consider three matters this morning as we track through this text and hopefully address a few questions along the way. And then coming to a 
that, hopefully, that final overarching thought that I just stated, to strengthen our souls for the days that we've been sovereignly ordained to live in today. First, we're going to consider the wickedness of the created is far-reaching. Secondly, the grief of the Holy King of mercy is, is further still. And finally, then, we'll consider the mercy of the King is greater than we can imagine. So first, the wickedness of the created is far-reaching. Verses 1 and 2 and verse 4 is where we're going to go here. Man began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. And these were the mighty men who were of old, men of great renown. So the, the interpretation of these connected verses for today's reader is difficult and controversial. Of course, the original hearers that believe were confused about these things at all. Nevertheless, all sorts of books have been written through the years, and disagreements are plentiful, and I recognize that I don't have the answer that is going to quell all the debate, but I do want to share some of what the debate is about and why it matters and what then my inclination is um, in this text. The debate centers around the term sons of God. Who are they? And, and the crucial question concerns whether the phrase refers to human beings or, or some sort of other beings, demons specifically. And there's one view that understands the sons of God as descendants of Seth, whom we spoke of last week. The, this is called the Sethite view. And, and in this way of understanding this text, this is simplifying, of course, but one considers that there were two lines that come from Adam, right? Remember the lines. There's... there's the, the line of Cain, or Cain, and the line of Abel, who had been killed, and then, so Seth. Seth was the righteous line that we spoke of last week, just the two lines. And the righteous one, uh, the righteous line, the sons of God, this is in this view, the sons of God, Seth's godly descendants, were intoxicated by the beauty of women descended from Cain, thus marrying those who'd rejected God and leading them into greater wickedness. So, for me... Um, it seems, at, and that's not the only other view, but that's the only other view we're going to look at compared to the view that I'm going to take this morning and run with, with you. It, it seems that these sons of God that, that, that the Sethite view speaks of aren't seen through the lens of being of the righteous seed of Seth as we spoke of last week. It, it doesn't seem like that to me as I read the text. It, in fact, considering that Noah is of the line of Seth and shows up again at the end of our text, it seems that there's a significant distinction, distinction being between um, the favorable righteous Noah and the sons of God who brought on significant disfavor of God and, and brought on, in some ways, the, the, the flood. They were the behind, behind this significant disfavor of God. There, there have been those who have said that there are other places in Scripture where we read of God's covenant people being God's sons, and that's true enough. Uh, but the specific phrase, the sons of God, it, it seems to be a specifically being used in a certain way here and not of the covenant people, again, as far as, as, far as I think. However, we've considered in weeks past that there is far more going on, right? Like from, from week one on, we've just realized 
I've been trying to communicate so much more going on than we could ever imagine. And so not getting lost in the trees, uh, all these important trees, but, but stepping back and seeing the grand view and the grand story, the meta narrative, the, the wonders of God and the glories of God and the, the wonders of his name and how he is spreading the glory of his name across and what the real issue is behind all the difficulties. There's so much more going on than what we could even imagine. So while the national or the, the, the rational, natural explanation of the Sethite view may fit our Western worldview, the worldview of the Bible seems to me to be expansively supernatural. So I want us to consider another view. I think the oldest interpretation is that the sons of God are, are fallen angels, demons. This was the interpretation most favored in ancient Judaism and, and the early church, even among Peter and Jude. Moreover, the phrase sons of God is clearly used elsewhere of angelic hosts in God's heavenly court, as we see in the book of Job or Psalm 82 or Deuteronomy 32. On top of that, the author seems to purposefully contrast man and the daughters of man with the sons of God in these two verses. Still, as we think about that and process that a little bit, it's hard to imagine the idea of fallen angels, you know, having physical relationships with women and producing offspring. So it's just a weird text. Um, nevertheless, despite that difficulty, I believe that that's what's happening in our text, primarily because it seems that both Peter and Jude seem to have held to it. Peter made specific connections with the evil spirits in Noah's day, with it, uh, which is in the time frame of our text today. And Jude parallels Peter and appears to allude to the text we're in today when he says this in verse 6 of Jude. He says, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. These, these angels demonstrated sinful pride by abandoning their position of authority and leaving their proper dwelling, and now they're being kept in eternal chains until the day of judgment. And just a few, a few thoughts. These, these passages, granted, don't give us a clear and authoritative answer as to how spiritual beings could have sexual relationships with women, but when we consider the supernatural worldview of God's word, and in light of examples we see in the New Testament, it seems best to assume that these evil spirits may very well have taken possession of bodies of wicked men and used them for their own sinful purposes, or something like that. And consider the um, Gadarene demoniac for a moment. Mark, Gospel of Mark, tells us that he behaves in an uncontrollable manner with, it's described as like superhuman strength uh, in Mark chapter 5. And so separating the actions of the man from the actions of the demon, in such case, is kind of hard to do. And Judas himself, of course, even though he was fully accountable for the decisions he made and the way that he went, um, it, John was clear to say that Satan filled him. Or Satan had entered him. And so obviously this seems entirely strange to our ears. It sounds all too science fiction or of the horror genre. But, but in light of the supernatural realities that we've already come to in Genesis, as we've considered the serpent of Genesis 3, the extensive realities of the supernatural throughout both the Old and New Testaments, the realm of angels and demons and principalities and powers that we yet today wrestle with, Ephesians 6, and, and the final promised demise of the very real Satan, the ancient serpent, the devil. In light of all that, is it not entirely possible that when, what we're witnessing here is that not only are 
there are those of the line of Cain who are rebelling against God, but also the created and fallen angels who, as Jude states, left their proper dwelling and rebelled against God with those whom he had created in his image. Um, now, if you stuck with me through that, I, 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 think, I, think, I think so. It's kind of where I land. Um, I don't have time to speak into all of this, but remember the ancient Israelites live in a time when there were all sorts of ancient epic stories. Um, epic stories of giants, epic stories of demigods from Babylon to Egypt and beyond, stories like the Epic of Gilgamesh, um, which made its debut in, in Marvel movies just like two years ago. Um, or maybe you've seen, I hope you haven't, uh, but if you've seen Russell Crowe's Noah, uh, uh, just, just cr crazy kind of stuff. But, but Israel would have been very familiar with, with all of these stories. And of course, they had seen the giants with their own eyes. Biblical Archaeology Review states clearly this. It said, The audience to whom the text was intended would have understood the sons of God to be the members of the divine assembly mentioned throughout the literature of the ancient Near East, including the Bible. In the biblical text, the sons of God are usually described as lesser heavenly beings in the service of the Most High. In the text of the cultures that surrounded Israel, like the Canaanite literature found at Ugarit, the sons of God similarly appear as divine beings in the service to the, kings of the king of the gods, El, and his queen Asherah. They include the likes of Baal, Anath, Astarte, Yam, and Mot. The audience of Genesis would have definitely understood these so-called fallen ones, Nephilim, to be the offspring of celestial beings and human women. Now, that's just biblical archaeology review, but none, nonetheless, there is historical kind of precedent in ancient Near East kind of things in this area. So it seems to me that one of the reasons the author of Genesis chose to mention the Nephilim can be found in their description at the end of verse 4. And at the end of verse 4, what does it say? The Nephilim were on the earth as those, in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old and men of renown. The, the, the picture, think again, is that these were these mighty men, these ancient champions who wanted to make a name for themselves. Men of renown, they wanted to make a name for themselves. Every culture in ancient Near East had these kinds of stories that included these kind of heroes. Might be familiar with Greek mythology, but way before Greek mythology was all of these things. This didn't come from nowhere. Simply put, the religious leaders of ancient Israel likely feared the stories of Gilgamesh and other demigods would lead the people into idolatry. And of course, what we see throughout Israel's history is it totally does lead them down the road into significant idolatry. So instead of denying the existence of famous heroes altogether, because there'd be no sense in doing that, because with their own eyes they see the Nephilim, the author labels them the fallen ones and all but blames them for the utter depravity that fell upon mankind and necessitated the flood. Not that it was all their fault, but it was like they were a part of it. And we're left to wonder then how, how they corrupted the world entirely, but as we've seen, we'll continue to see the concept, the concept of making a name for oneself, of living for our own glory, is clearly at odds from Genesis 1 on 
throughout Scripture to Revelation 22 where, where God is making a name for himself. So this making a name for oneself, clearly at odds with the world we found in the pages of the Bible, specifically the book of Genesis, it just calls to mind the human pride and wickedness that began in the Garden of Eden. And just after the flood, as we'll consider in just a few short weeks in Babel, a place with a long association with epic tales and legendary kings, Babylon, human beings decided to band together and build a tower to heaven to make a name for themselves. And Pastor Kale's going to preach on that in about three weeks. And then interestingly, just as a side note, here are these epic stories of these powerful creatures. And what's coming after Babel but some obscure pagan fellow with seemingly little heritage that we know of who is going to be the hero of the story, Abraham. And the covenant that God makes with Abraham, that we have the joy of being recipients of the promise of that covenant through Christ. The story is remarkable. All the details, all the little details and stuff that we, we have a hard time with and grappling with. And I'm not saying everything I said is entirely true. There's, 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 there's ranges of understanding and belief and in all of this. But the point is, is that ultimately, people are trying to make a name for themselves, whether it's the created angels who fell, making a name for themselves, filled with pride and wanting to overtake God, Yahweh, or the people who have been created doing the same thing. So with all that said, again, let me just say some, some things that we can be absolutely sure of. First, something absolutely abnormal is taking place in our text. The Nephilim, the fallen ones, born to the daughters of men. These were the ones whom the generation of Israel spoke of when they said in Numbers 13, they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out. Now, now listen, I know that these, these, these men who, who were freaked out and were scared, and there was only two that said, hey, let's do it, because they trusted God. But like, put yourself in the 12 spies' place, and seeing what they saw... In this text, consider which one would you be, the ten or the two. Um, they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. This, this much is sure. Somehow, giants were born to the daughters of men, and it seems to me that our text today, along with what Peter writes of and Jude speaks of, along with the supernatural reality of all of Scripture and the ancient Near East culture, that all of what we read was being lived out, it, all of what we have read in Genesis is being lived out in that A&E culture, the ancient Near East culture, points to something beyond nature that's happening and is part of something that is a growing wickedness that incorporates both the created angels, demons, and the created humans who have rejected God. Which leads to the second thing to be sure of. Regardless of what your understanding is on the sons of God and the Nephilim, the main point is clear. Humanity, 
was falling deeper and deeper into sin, striving hard to make a name for themselves and rejecting God outright, disobeying the creation mandate, running farther and farther away <coughs> from God. <clears throat> so that's the picture of this, of this whole text. These, these, are, these are things that we can be absolutely sure of. The, the wickedness of the created ones is far-reaching. Things aren't just, you know, not quite right. They are expansively wicked. And the amount of years that everyone lived during those days just made things all the worse. Evil kept getting more and more and more evil. And we're growing to realize that beyond the rejection of God in the hearts of man and the nation sits the reality that is still alive and at work today, the reality of fallen angels, false gods, demons, who are at ultimate enmity with Yahweh, the gods of the nations. The rejection of God and his word beget more rejection of God and his word, and, and that's always the case. There is no neutrality here. There never is as it concerns absolute truth. When one rejects absolute truth and rejects the one who is absolute truth, the outcome is going to be growing pride. Actually, it stems from growing pride, but there's going to be more growing pride and self-sufficiency, desiring to spread the false glory of their name rather than the glory of the name of Yahweh. Whether it's the rejection of Yahweh by the powerful sons of God who are being, who are being um, what, yeah, let, me, let, me, let me back up. Whether it's, whether it's the rejection of Yahweh by the powerful sons of God who are created beings or rejection of Yahweh by the men and women meant to image forth the glory of the creator, it's the reality of our text that at this point in history, the wickedness of the created ones is far-reaching. It's, it's deep and it's wide and it, it covers the known earth at the time and it involves everything, utterly depraved in every way. And yet as far-reaching as that wickedness is, what I want us to consider is, is the second point, that the grief of the holy king of mercy is further still. The grief of the holy king of mercy is further Still, the fact that our God, our creator God is holy, he's perfect, pure, righteous in all ways, there is no evil in him at all. So upon seeing, um, upon seeing over a matter of just 10 generations, this kind of evil and wickedness and pervasive wickedness advancing in such massive ways, we see not primarily the holy wrath of God in itself, although that will play a part and is part of this, but we come to see holy grief, holy grief of the holy King. We see it in verse 3 first. The Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh, his days shall be 120 years. We considered last week the men prior to the flood lived lives many, many years, hundreds and hundreds of years, but men after the flood would not live for more than 120 years. And this was part of God's judgment upon man due to the increase of wickedness on the earth. And of course, over the next number of years after the flood, the, the years kind of start toggling down. It's not like they immediately go to 120 or less. They, they're kind of toggling down and down and down until it is as it is today. The limitation of the lifespan of man seems to be a fitting consequence, doesn't it? To the increase of wickedness described in the passage. You might imagine that a king who is alive for 500, 600 years, who's a despot, he's going to produce a significant difficulty across the world. Imagine if Hitler was alive for so long or other people like him. Now again, let's not get lost in the trees here, but rather consider the glorious truths that we see of the king's attributes and character in this text. 
It, just in that passage, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The first thing, really, that we can see in that, specifically, is that God is a sovereign, omnipotent king. You see that in that text? No matter how powerful the enemy is, no matter how pervasively wicked he is or she is, God states what the parameters are, and the enemy can go no further. Sorry, no farther. I'm trying to get farther and further, right? It's further? Really? Dang it. Yeah, so you can't go any farther. Okay, whatever. Anyway, so, so, okay, so, I've, so I've got two beefs. One is farther, further. The other one is, is a couple and a few. Anyway, so those are, those are things we can talk about. Um, so the, God, is, God is a sovereign, omnipotent king. Second, we see the patience of our sovereign, omnipotent king. He says, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. And even with what is coming in our text and what's coming next week in the next few chapters, the king is mercifully patient, striving with man, working with and in man. And as we go through this entire book, both Genesis and this book in its entirety, uh, we consider the lives of people yet today, how patient and merciful is our holy God to continue working among people, drawing them to himself, patiently calling them to repentance, to turn from their wickedness and trust him. This is God's patience, calling men to repent, calling women to repent. Yet even amid the sovereign, omnipotent king's patience, somewhere along the line of those thousands of years of mankind prior to the flood, the wickedness got to a place where we read in verse 5 that he saw the wickedness of man was, was so great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And here we see another attribute of our king right away. And that is that he sees everything. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. Nothing escapes him. God sees the intentions and the thoughts of the hearts that are in this room and the hearts of mankind. And though it may be true that man had grown exceedingly wicked in the days prior to the flood, the same could be said of fallen and sinful Mankind even today, the plight of abortion, the, the plight of murder, ongoing murder, and the onslaught of a myriad of issues around sexuality and gender and godlessness and hate towards fellow man and the castrating of absolute truth and the despising of God and his people and the narrow message of um, the good news of Jesus Christ, the despisal of that narrow message. Um, it's true now, and it was true in our text. And it honestly does not take long after the flood for the next chapters to reveal that evil reemerges and for it to continue in the most every generation between. The testimony of Scripture from beginning to end is that man, fallen, sinful, and unregenerate man, is corrupt to the core. It doesn't mean that mankind acts out on the corruption all the time by way of gruesome acts. It is indeed true that even among the kindest and gentlest people, sacrificial people, is a heart that betrays their self-sufficiency and their self-dependence and their self-governance and the ultimate fact that there is indeed no fear of God before their eyes. So even in their good, kind, gracious acts, they are making a name for themselves. Paul speaks of it in Romans 3, very clearly, and we'll quote it in just a little bit. What we read in our text is that God is far from unaffected by the sins of people. He's not just irritated by it, or he's just even angered by it. 
He says, the author says, the Lord, as Yahweh, regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And then in the second half of verse 7, he says, I'm sorry that I've made them. Now, the meaning of those statements is simple enough. God was extremely displeased with the wickedness of man. And to help us understand how much the language of human emotion and, and experience is used to communicate that truth to us. We, we know what it is, don't we, to regret something. We, we understand that. To be sorry concerning something we've done. We use your imagination then as to how deep the displeasure of the holy, patient, merciful creator God is with the pervasive wickedness of man as they reject him and in his goodness and mercy and patience and provision and promises and hope and his presence and mankind still rejects him after all of that, whether in that day or whether in this day. How, how sorry would you be? How much regret would you have? How much more so our God? Now, while it's impossible for God to have erred in some way and truly regretted something as though that was a mistake, as 1 Samuel 15, among other passages, says he's not a man that he should have regret, um, the reality is that there is something very real, much more deeply and wholly real than our grief and regret that is at work in God in this moment. His grief could mean something similar to the way Jesus felt at the grave of Lazarus when it says he was deeply moved and that was a mix of, of what holy rage and bitter anguish. The reality is in our text that God was exceedingly displeased with the wickedness of man in those days. So extensive is this displeasure that we come upon the words in verse 7 that says, God says, I will blot out Man, whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, because I'm sorry that I've made them. The sovereign, merciful, patient God is going to act. He's going to act. He will not stand by and just let this wickedness continue. Certainly, as he described himself on, on Mount Sinai to Moses, he says this about himself. Doesn't he? This is the way he describes himself always. He says, he says, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, this God, says, a God merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Yes, oh, thank God that he is like that. But the next sentence says, but who will by no means clear the guilty? The wickedness of the created is far-reaching, but the grief of the holy king of mercy is further still. He will not let evil persist. Nothing will usurp his authority. Nothing will usurp his omnipotence. Nothing will usurp his omnipresence, nothing will usurp his omniscience, nothing will usurp him as he is planned to redeem a people for himself to dwell with forever. He is going to see to it that his plan is going to work from the beginning to the very end. <clears throat> and so the stage has been set for the story of the flood, which God was going to send upon the earth, and we'll get to that next week. But before we get to that story, we have one more thing to see in our text. And we see this, that the mercy of the king is greater than we can imagine. The wickedness of man is far-reaching. The, the grief of the holy king is further still. And but the mercy of God, man, is greater than we can imagine. Just in verse 8. 
Simple sentence. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. An amazing thing to consider that though created beings were exceedingly wicked and though the sinfulness of man had spread throughout all the earth and though he was going to bring judgment on mankind, God was foundationally gracious and merciful still. By his grace, he was going to preserve a people for himself. Noah, as we'll consider more next week, was righteous in his generation. Like Enoch before him, Noah walked with God, and this was by God's grace. Let me point something out here. Before there was any mention of Noah's faith and righteousness, there was favor in the eyes of the Lord toward Noah. Much much like we took a moment to consider a few weeks ago with Abel, uh, what, what did it say, but the Lord had regard for Abel? Abel found favor in God's eyes, and then so did his offering. Similarly, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Amid the depravity of the day, the grace of God found Noah. Everything in this text is placed with precision, and what we're left to ponder at this point is simply the extensive grace of our merciful God amid significant evil. The familiar story we come to next week emerges out of the greater story of the faithful, merciful, gracious God who plans to redeem a people for himself to dwell with forever. The story is not primarily about Noah. The story is not primarily about the flood. The story is not primarily about all the good that Noah did. The story is about the grace of God keeping a people for himself to dwell with, that the glory of his name would be spread among the nations. And that's the story of our text, not the Nephilim. Not the sons of God, not the daughters of men. The grace of God that amid all, all the weight, all the weight of sin, amid all the temptations, amid all the evil outbursts of culture and society and everything, stands the merciful grace, gentleness, love of God who will by no means let the guilty go unpunished but is a God who is merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love the story of grace. That the glory of his name would be spread among the nations. And that's the story of grace we come to again and again throughout scripture. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing, it's the gift of God. The grace of God, you think about the song, the grace of God has reached for me, pulled me from the raging seas, the way the song goes. This is, this is we were not looking, and yet God in his mercy reached out, saved us for the praise of his glorious grace amid significant sin and transgression. Amid all the wickedness of the created beings, amid all the holy grief approaching judgment both in that day and in our day, we see once again the remarkable mercy of the King and we can gain a joyful assurance in his unstoppable plan to redeem a people for himself to dwell with forever, to proclaim his glory among the nations. And so with these words again, the stage is set for Noah and the flood. Notice on this side of the flood, we don't have to fear universal flood on account of God's promise of chapter 9, which we'll get to next week. But there is something far worse to fear than a universal flood. Specifically, the fear of what Kent Hughes says, 
is being forever drowned beneath the cold waves of our own sin. And as it was then, so it is now, our only hope from the beginning to the end, our only hope from being drowned and beneath the cold waves of our own sin, facing the holy God who remains entirely patient and who even calls you to himself today, so you don't have to face his judgment on that final day is God's mercy and grace. It's not your ability to do anything. It's, it's, it's on God. It's God's mercy and grace. Listen, the only thing you're called to do today is to come to him and believe on him. You don't have to think too much to see that our world today sits under the very right judgment of God. It's still not as bad as it could be. But all the signs seem to point to the reality that our society and our world is increasingly godless. And I certainly believe that the gospel of grace is going forward more today um, than ever in various places in the world. But the opposition of the gospel of grace is, is also there. Today, despite the history we're working through in Genesis and despite the cross of Christ and his resurrection that we just celebrated specifically last weekend and celebrate each week, despite the activity of the Spirit through God's people over the last 2,000 years, remains myriads of a profoundly sinful and God-rejecting people. So much so that Paul would say, and by quoting Psalms, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now look, that was the reality in the psalmist's day. And that's the reality in Paul's day. That was the reality in Genesis 6. And that's the reality in 2023. Such were we who believe and trust in God if we had been left to ourselves. And such are all who are left to themselves. If we refuse the grace of God, rejecting his mercy in and through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we will travel the same road as those in our text and those whom we'll see next week. Jesus stated it this way in Matthew 24. He says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And so, dear ones, let me leave you with three thoughts. First, amid the evil days in which we dwell, may we grieve with God. May we grieve first over our own sin, and after that over the sins of others. And may that sorrow lead us to repentance so that we might live holy before the Lord to the glory of his name. And may the sorrow we feel over the sins of others in our culture incite us to pray. Here, here the, the word incite is said purposefully. A, remember I, I called 
God's grief, his holy grief, this, 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 this righteous anger, and yet like real true grief. Let that righteous anger, that holy anger, cause you to go to God. Pray for people. Pray for God's mercy on people. That they would not be continually leading their way into such craziness, sin and depravity. I mean, I know you see the same things I see. And you're just thinking, how? How, how did it get here? It's just crazy. It's ridiculous. We have an enemy. That's how. The enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's how it got to where it is today. Let that cause us to have holy grief where we, where we cry out to God for his mercy and protection over the people whom we love very dearly, whether enemies or not. Friends, as Jesus hung on the cross, the Son of God being uniquely and severely rejected entirely, mocked upon, spit upon, beaten to a pulp and killed, what is it he does but says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. So may the heart of beneficence be on our tongues as we consider the depravity and confusion of our society as they soundly reject the truth of God and his word in the darkness of their hearts. Let us not turn a blind eye to the wickedness that's in our culture. Let us call out the sin and pray to God for correction from the sin, not just correction in a morality, but a changed heart, lives that are totally born again to new life to where a heart comes from death to life, where they, they are moved from the kingdom of darkness, where all they can see is gender confusion, upsetting the created order of marriage, the murder of innocent babies, or the murder of anyone or any number of other things. What's going to cause them to move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the sun, the kingdom of light, where there is no more of that, where there is obedience to the sun, is going to be a radical move of the Holy Spirit, saving them, regenerating them. So we pray with bold assurance and we come with confidence before the throne, with holy grief, saying, Lord, save and protect. Save people from the murderous onslaught of government officials and people who follow. Oh, but Lord, save their lives. Save, save them, change them, that they might not walk in disobedience. Second, amid the evil days in which we dwell, may we know and share with others the truth that mankind's only hope is the enormous grace of God. He saved us, Titus 3.5 says, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That's how he saved us, by his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is our hope, isn't it? The grace of God 
reaching for us. This is the message we have to a world that's running headlong towards the cliff of final judgment. Paul says, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe on him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless someone is sent? Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So may the word of the cross be ever on our lips. May the name of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ be on our lips as we engage those around us in our families, in our workplaces, in our communities, and in our nation, in our world, proclaiming Christ, making the name of God known among our neighbor, in our families, in our neighborhoods, and in our nation, and in our world. Finally, amid the evil days in which we dwell, may we not lose sight of the central issue in this passage, the central theme of the entirety of Scripture. Namely, what we stated earlier in the study of Genesis is that in the infinitely powerful hands of our sovereign, faithful God, the King of the universe and the King of our hearts, God's people are kept safe in His kingdom. May we rejoice in that. In the middle of a brutal sinful culture that we live in, God will not let you go. So look to him as those delivered from the kingdom of darkness, as those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, living in the victory over the enemy, calling others into that freedom. Look to Christ. Look to Christ and him crucified. Get to know him. Talk with him. Don't ignore him. Don't put him on the shelf. Look to him for your help. Take your sorrows to him in tear-stained, dependent prayers, trusting him to be true to his promises. Take the, the culture to God in prayer and depend on him for change. Take your parenting struggles to him. Take your marital struggles to him. Take everything to him. Take your understandable anger to him. Cry out to him and, and have him restore by his grace the joy, the joy of your salvation. Confess your sin to him. Know his certain forgiveness. Sing out to him with thanksgiving for life and breath. We're going to sing Jesus paid it all in just a few moments. And man, sing it out. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Man, glorious truth. Glorious way to sing. Glorious way to live. Amid the fearful, anxious, difficult, troubled days you and I experience in our lives. May we pray like this. Let's pray this together. I think it'll come up. Is there another one? Is there one more slide? Let's say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.